0: Should we just get into it?
1: I got a Disco order yesterday from someone with the username "orgasm grind." Yeah, is that one of you by chance? No. Okay. <laughs>
2: That's all you have to say about it.
1: Yep.
0: <laughs> you know, mine is "orgasm pet."
1: Okay.
2: <laughs> yeah, and mine is "grind till you die." Okay. Okay. <laughs>
1: Welcome to I Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, and I'm joined by my regular co-host, appreciator of the erotic qualities of the salted cured meats, Peter Cook. Oh my goodness, you gave me one of the sexual ones instead of Jeremy. Yeah, see, Jeremy thought it was coming for him, but no, I'm flipping the script today.
2: My (laughs) mouth was open, ready
1: to talk. I was like, "Oh, here <laughs> yeah, it comes! It. It's me." You ready for the total yeah. mind fuck? Though I'm, here's here's the other introduction. We're also joined by my other co-host, John Otto's drum retimer, Jeremy Ruggles. What?
2: I I'm speechless. Yeah. Now his
0: mouth's really open.
2: <laughs> it's stuck agape, kind of like John Otto's hi hat. Okay you <laughs> it all back home tying it together way to
0: bring it around
2: <laughs> hey jeremy guess what the drummer for limbiscuit is john otto for our listeners who probably don't know that oh they could have looked it up wikipedia exists true sorry i ruined your wikipedia time friendly listeners <laughs> I think our listeners are
0: starting to wonder why we have so many Limp Bizkit references in these openings.
1: I think our <laughs> listeners are actually wondering why other podcasts don't have enough Limp Bizkit references. Yeah, I'm
2: with Sean. <laughs>
0: yeah, you're right. All right. Listeners are just happy to be here for our Limp Bizkit references.
1: <laughs> Anyways, I say again. Jeremy, guess what? Um, The... I don't know. I got nothing. I've got a fever, and the only prescription is the cowbell intro on the first song on the record you're going to be talking about today. Well done. You want to tell us what that record is and maybe play the song for us?
2: Oh, yeah. That was the song I was going to start with. I guess I didn't have a chance to... I mean, what else was I going to pick? Anyways, (laughs) Les McCann and Eddie Harris, Swiss movement... You'll find it everywhere because it is one of the best-selling jazz albums of all time because of this song compared to what here it is
0: The are killing hoes Twisted children are killing frogs Poor dumb rednecks Rolling along Tired
1: old ladies kissing dogs I hate the human love Of that
0: sneaking mud I can't use it I'm Trying to make it real Compared to what Come on baby now. Whoa! This was a hit song in the late '60s, and there's a swear in there.
2: There's a swear. This is Ooh. the changing of the guard, Peter.
0: Wow. I didn't Momentous. think
2: I didn't think dance music was allowed to get political. What's going on? Yeah. Well, first, I feel the need to address his his rip on pets. There. I don't know if you caught it in that last verse. He's kind of like dogging on people having pets.
0: Oh, good wordplay.
2: Yeah. Well, he also, it's literal too. He, I read a thing, an interview with him and he talks about how it's not like he doesn't have a problem with people having pets. It's just that people need to make human connections and not just like hide in this world with these animals that will love them no matter what, because they're feeding them interesting yeah
1: it's uh not a position that you normally hear people comment on so that's cool yeah
2: people don't people don't go after pets too much (laughs) they've been they've been having it too easy for too long i'm glad yeah glad less finally ripped out this political banger but here's the thing that wasn't less no because less didn't write the song boys I know who Ooh. wrote it. Who wrote it, Sean Dad? Motherfucking Eugene McDaniels. Yes, sir. You remember that name, Peter?
0: I do, and I uh, I can't place it.
2: Eugene McDaniels wrote the song Feel Like Making Love for Roberta Flack.
0: Mm-hmm. Ah, that's where I know it from. Very cool. And
2: wrote this song. And you ready for even, like, further connection-making? Oh, you know it. Les McCann was the one who discovered Roberta Flack.
0: <gasps> you really brought it full circle.
2: Yeah. He brought Roberta Flack to Atlantic Records, and the actual first version recorded of Compared to What is on Roberta Flack's first album, First Take.
1: Mm-hmm. Nice. Nice. I remember reading that when doing the research for Roberta Flack and thinking, we should cover a Les McCann and Eddie Harris record sometime, because those records are dope and so easy to find. And
2: here we are. Here we are. (laughs) Yeah. And someone on our Facebook recommended this record, too. And that's when I was like, yeah, we're going to do it. Hell yeah. Thank
0: you, anonymous Facebook user.
2: Yeah, I'm sure we could find out who, but I don't pay enough attention, so thank you, sorry, I don't remember your name, whoever recommended it. You should have told me to
0: do my Facebook stalking in advance of the episode for that one.
2: Sorry, Pedro. Let the record show that
1: Jeremy (laughs) Foley does not care about our fans and listeners.
2: (laughs) Harsh. (laughs) Hey, how many hours do you guys spend editing these podcasts a week?
1: Oh, so many.
2: (laughs) So many. I couldn't even count them. All right, I better keep this brief because our uh, our audio editor's been complaining about the lanes of these episodes, so.
1: I stopped listening to the complaints of our audio editor a long time ago.
2: Oh, no, that's me.
1: <laughs> Trouble in paradise over here in podcast land, boys.
2: Oh, Lord, can we get back to the record?
1: Swiss movement. Yeah, I have, <laughs> real, real quick, I have proof that this album is super easy to find because earlier today, I got in my minivan, and I drove six hours round trip to the land of Chicago so that I could buy about 800 records off a guy. And sure enough, there's Les McCann and Eddie Harris sitting right up in front of one of those boxes, Swiss movement.
0: So if you buy 800 records, chances are this will be one of them.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was a jazz-heavy collection, so like you're not going to buy an all-classic rock collection and have this sticking in there. But if it's, you know, pretty much anybody that was an avid jazz collector in this time period had this
2: record. Yeah, this is one of the best-selling records of all time, jazz speaking. Yeah. I've got uh,
1: 45 of that song compared to what that I've played frequently at live gigs. And it is the edited version. There's a nice loud beep over the swear in there so I can play it for the kids. <laughs>
2: Boy. <sighs> okay, so this album, another live album, my second live album in a row now. Mm -hmm. another reason i kind of wanted to do this we did that josh white live album and i was like i i like the idea of doing another live album so here i am this was recorded at the Montreux jazz festival which was not even that popular of a jazz festival until this record came out and then it spawned there's got to be at least like a hundred live at Montreux albums at this point i think right guys Sure.
1: Yeah. I'll get behind that.
2: Yeah, there's a ton. But the craziest part of this whole album is, A, it wasn't recorded to be an album. They just recorded it for posterity's sake at the festival. Hmm. And B, this show wasn't even going to happen. Both Les McCann Trio and Eddie Harris played at the festival And we're like, hey, let's do a show together. After they saw each other play, didn't know each other beforehand, didn't even rehearse before doing this show. And they asked Benny Bailey, another big jazz guy, to join them. So all three of them played together for the first time ever on this record. Like, this record is them playing together for the first time. That's so cool.
1: Yeah. Damn. <laughs> the chemistry is incredible, too. I would have absolutely never guessed that they weren't like a functional working band based on the material on here. Yeah, they seem very seasoned. Yeah.
2: they did. Yeah, they More didn't even it. know the songs either. Like, they didn't discuss what songs they're going to do. One of them's Eddie Harris's song, and they didn't know the chords or the melody or anything about the song. They just figured it out on the go.
1: Love it. That's that's some
2: real pro level jazz shit right there. Yeah, because these dudes are all pros. Yep. Which one should we start with? I'll let you guys pick. There's Les McCann, Benny Bailey, or Eddie Harris? Uh
1: Leroy Vinegar.
2: Leroy Vinegar of the Les McCann trio. Uh-huh. Also. The Walker. They called the him walker. the Walker. <laughs> I feel like that nickname could be interpreted as,
1: like, very mild or very, like, horrifying under the right circumstances.
2: Yeah. He was
0: the dog walker and (laughs) got criticized because of his relationship with pets.
1: Yeah. You know, he'll walk (laughs) those baselines, but if you fuck around, he's going to walk you right off the goddamn
2: pier. Ooh. Ooh. Dang. Walker, Texas Ranger style. Yep.
0: (laughs) Oh man, is that our first Chuck Norris reference on the podcast?
1: <laughs> the first, and hopefully I the hope last. so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah,
0: it's not two thousand four. No, anymore. we're we're
1: done. <laughs> it's over. Yeah, I, I'm looking here on the discogs at Leroy Vinegar's collected works, and I think I only owned one other record that he is on because he did a track on Van Morrison's 1972 album Saint Dominic's Preview.
2: Oh, far out. Yeah. I- I didn't even know that.
1: Yep. Yeah, because Van was always collaborating with uh like genuine jazz guys around this time.
0: Oh yeah, totally. Astral Weeks.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So aside from Leroy Vinegar, The Walker, you got Donald Dean on drums who he played drums. I don't know. It
1: looks like he played uh, with Les McCann a lot He also played with Jimmy Smith and a couple other guys But Les McCann and Jimmy Smith were his two main collaborations
2: Yeah, he primarily played with those two One thing that tripped me out is This is the first album Donald Dean is on with Les McCann Whoa! So it's uh, presumably considering Les McCann put out like four albums a year through the 60s he must have just started playing with Les McCann. So all of this was probably very new to him as well. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this would have been Les McCann's like 24th album. Wow. And he Jeez. put out his first one in 1960. So um, yeah, he was just cranking out albums through the sixties.
0: That's prolific.
2: Yeah. He was part of a, uh, he was one of the first Pacific Jazz records to come out. I don't know if you guys know that label and that mm-hmm. whole deal. Yeah, there's some great stuff on there. Yeah,
0: mm-hmm.
2: yeah. They also put out West Montgomery, who we covered. Yep. The uh, album West Montgomery did with his two other brothers was put out on Pacific Jazz. Okay. Less. I don't want to get into too much like history stuff. Let's. I want to focus on the moment here with it. But reading interviews with Les, he had a very, like, guru vibe to me. He he would say these sort of, uh, like, general and wise statements at times that it didn't really make sense to say those things. <laughs>
1: Which is, like, an interesting pairing, then, with Eddie Harris, because I've always thought of Eddie as, like, the kind of Joker of the jazz world. I mean, he literally put out a stand up comedy record in the middle of his <laughs> jazz. Oh, don't albums. go
2: too. Oh, I want to get into that, but we'll okay, get into cool. that in a
1: minute. <laughs> 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 yeah, they're such a good pairing, both like personality wise and musicianship wise. It's great.
2: Yeah. Yeah. When I was doing the research, I initially thought it was like very yin and yang. But then I started like reading up on Benny Bailey and I'm like, he's like a whole third different thing. Completely. He has, like, nothing to do with kind of that interplay between Les McCann and Eddie Harris. Mm. We'll get to him in a minute. I want to play the next track. This one is called Cold Duck Time. From Swiss Movement. From Swiss Movement. gotta get the record if you want to see where that was going (laughs) it was going good places though
1: there's a full six and a half minutes of that song
2: yeah either you guys know what cold duck is Mm, aside from a very literal interpretation no
0: i can't say i know that
2: i don't think anybody actually knows but a cold duck it turns out is a drink that a That Eddie Harris Had in Detroit, Michigan Right around the corner from here Huh And it is the You take the like dregs And like filamenty gross stuff At the bottom of the wine bottle And you mix it into champagne And then you drink it And that's cold duck
1: Okay Mm. Interesting
2: Yeah it sounds strange and gross to me
0: (laughs) Well, while we're on that subject, do we know what a Swiss movement is, the title of this album?
2: Oh, I didn't know there was a thing to it. Do you have the answer, Peter, or were you just hoping we did?
0: (laughs) Well, I was searching Swiss movement to pull up the album, and instead I was directed to, uh, what is a Swiss movement? A watch movement is considered Swiss if the movement has been assembled in Switzerland and the movement has been inspected by the manufacturer in Switzerland. Huh? So I don't know if that, so that's obviously this was recorded in Switzerland at the Montreux jazz festival by Lake Geneva, the, the Lake Geneva shoreline. Did you, any of you guys make that that connection? I, I might be the most classic rock oriented person of this podcast but the opening lines to Deep Purple's Smoke on the Water are we all came out to Montreux on the Lake Geneva shoreline mm. because that's all about that Frank Zappa concert where the flare gun got shot off and burned down the Montreux Casino this right. is being recorded in the in that place that burned down that Deep Purple wrote Smoke on the Water about
1: okay so it burned down after this concert or they had rebuilt it yeah
0: just a few they did end up rebuilding it but it was a few years after this concert okay huh yep so if you look you'll see that the this jazz festival took place at the Montreux Casino the first several years and then started taking place somewhere else because the Montreux Casino burned down at a Frank Zappa concert
1: <laughs> interesting <laughs>
0: yeah in deep purple i think we're in attendance recording with the mobile the rolling stones mobile studio and then wrote smoke on the water in response to that so there's my uh, Frank Zappa connection nice. and Deep Purple connection.
1: Weird. Okay. So I was while listening to that song, I was thinking about what we were saying about how this band pretty much was haphazardly formed for this concert. And I think that kind of has a lot to do with what I like about this album. Because, you know, some live albums are impressive because of how tight the band is. And you can't really say that this band is incredibly tight on this record, but that's what makes it good it has a different energy to it. You can tell they're all excited about just doing this new thing in front of an audience and it just works so well. Just perfect moment in time captured on record.
0: Yeah, I was thinking since now I know that this is was not planned and it was very spontaneous. I'm like, "Oh, is this what loose fun jazz sounds like? Still really like, you know, synchronized." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and solid synergy.
2: Yeah, I mean it captures that like spark of creation, I feel like. And it's uh, a loose and wild spark. And it's mm-hmm. not, I don't know, like personally, when I think of improv, the first thing that comes to mind are those jam bands and they're like 25 minute solos. But realistically, they know the songs they're playing and the chord changes and they've probably rehearsed it a bunch of times. They might not know, like, note for note what they're about to do, but they have a general idea going into it, how it's going to go. And this is, like, way beyond that. This is true improv of, like, they're figuring out what the song is in front of you as it's going along.
1: Right. I mean, they probably all have the sheet music for the songs, I would imagine, but still. making up the the feeling and the solos, I'm sure, are all completely improvised. But yeah,
2: it's great. No, there's sheet music. No, there's no sheet music. None. They're making it all up as they go.
1: Okay, all right, well,
2: respect. even the words to compared <laughs> to what he was that was off the dome.
1: Yeah, and then they just realized, like, oh shit, we actually copied this entirely from Gene McDaniel's. We should give him some writing credit real quick. Oops.
2: Yeah, that was uh, it was like a Manchurian candidate situation, I think.
1: Fascinating. Well, you heard it here first, and I'd buy that for a (laughs) dollar.
2: Anyways, here's some real facts about Eddie Harris, the other named fellow on this record.
1: Mm -hmm. The electrifying Eddie Harris.
2: The electrifying Eddie Harris from Chicago, home of the Electric Blues. He was uh, drafted into the Army. He wasn't trying to be there. He just had to go there. Then he returned to Chicago and started kicking out some jazz. and His first album, Exodus to Jazz, was the first jazz album to be certified gold in 1961. Mm -hmm. Cool. Then in 1967, like 14 albums later, because he was also extremely prolific through the 60s and into the 70s, he put out the electrifying Eddie Harris. Sean, you want to tell the people why it's called that?
1: Because my man, Eddie Harris was known for having his electric saxophone, which was kind of a novelty in the jazz world. And to this day, not a lot of other people have really adopted that style, but he had, uh, he had some pickups on the saxophone so he could like run it through the amp and get some interesting extra tonal quality to the saxophone that you didn't get anywhere else. And, for the, you know, soul, jazz, dance music style that he was playing, it just, it worked perfectly.
2: Yeah. He also credited it in an interview from the 90s. He believes that the electric sax allowed him to play saxophone for much longer into his life because he didn't have to blow his heart. He could just let the amplifier do the work. Interesting. Yeah, You know, I read that
1: Coltrane actually had an electric saxophone towards the end of his life and was practicing on it a lot at home, but never got it into a session, but was really interested in the instrument and theoretically would have cut records with it if he hadn't died too young.
2: Far out. Yeah. As you, I think, alluded to earlier, Eddie Harris was, he kind of came up with some wacky sounds and instruments and was very, I would say, he was prone to experimentation and play
1: mm-hmm.
2: and he made a a reed trumpet where he used a saxophone mouthpiece and had it fitted to go into a trumpet then he made a saxabone which <laughs> was weird kind of the opposite where he used a trombone mouthpiece into a saxophone and something I couldn't really find any information on, he called a git organ, which was a guitar and organ somehow.
1: Whoa. It looks like he's playing that weird uh, trumpet saxophone hybrid on the back cover of this album.
2: Yeah, I was looking at that and I couldn't figure out what that was he was holding. It's confusing. Yeah, because he's still
1: wearing the electric saxophone, but that's off to the side and That does look like a saxophone mouthpiece on a trumpet-esque instrument with maybe holes cut into it. The way he's holding it, it looks like he's fingering the trumpet, like covering holes almost like a flute style. It's really interesting. Yeah. What a tinkerer. Yeah.
2: And he's only, on this album, he's credited only as tenor sax and I don't recall any parts where I would question whether it's a tenor sax or not, so I'm... I don't know if that picture really is from this concert, honestly.
1: It really doesn't look like it is because I don't it doesn't look like they're on stage and Les is just standing next to him not playing piano. So that must have just been That's them like point. hanging out backstage somewhere.
2: Yeah. Les would be truly virtuistic if he was playing piano from his standing position next to Eddie <laughs> Harris with no piano in sight.
1: With his eyeballs, his sight. But, you know, I mean, Thelonious Monk would just get up when he wasn't playing piano and dance around the stage, so maybe Les was on that trip for a while. Could be.
0: Less is more.
1: Yeah. I also want to say one thing about Eddie Harris. There's a fine line between being gimmicky and being fun and not afraid to take risks, and it never feels like Eddie Harris goes into gimmicky territory. As goofy as he got on some of his records. It all is still like has a lot of musical integrity to it, I would say, and is really
2: interesting. Have you listened to his album The Reason Why I'm Talking Shit?
1: Uh yeah, I have.
2: You have it, don't you? I
1: don't have it, but I've had I have heard it.
2: Okay. For our listeners who don't have it in their collection somehow, it seems to be an album created of like stage banter that are like jokes he's telling before he plays a song yeah and that's the whole album though yep
0: oh man they made a robert pollard the vocalist of guided by voices they had a a release that was just him talking shit on stage just all of his stage banter i didn't realize it had been done prior to that
1: yeah that album was called relaxation of the asshole and i sold it for like 40 (laughs) dollars so (laughs) ridiculous (laughs) like why would somebody spend that much money for not music
0: (laughs) those gbv fans are nuts oh my god as one as someone who has kind of gone in that direction i can tell you
2: i would pay for a an album of mountain goats banter that's the only band I can think of that I would want an album of banter from. You would,
0: John Darnielle.
2: Yeah, he has excellent banter. He
0: he can point out some things. I, I having seen them live, he he'll call some things out.
2: Anyways, the electrifying Eddie Harris. Sean, you're uh, uh from what I remember, a big fan of Eddie Harris, right?
1: You know who got me into Eddie Harris? Who? Jared Selner. Oh, that. Saxquatch? Yep. When, in my early days of touring, Jared was like, do you listen to Eddie Harris? And I was like, no. And Jared was like, he's awesome. I want all the Eddie Harris records. When you're out and about buying records, get them for me. And I, I think I bought at least like five different Eddie Harris records for Jared over the years and started listening to him because of him. I was like, okay, this is actually dope. Not everything Jared has recommended to me has been good, but this is this is one that stuck
0: damn (laughs) i like that you
1: had to put that in there yeah just the facts (laughs) over here
2: (laughs) (laughs) yeah i when reading about eddie harris it seems like he was not taken as seriously by like jazz critics who are you know up their own asses with their like haughty down jazz critics Yeah. Dude,
1: jazz critics suck. (laughs) The history of like most good jazz musicians, especially like anyone who tried to do something outside of the current norm, is, is just full of all these supposedly respectable critics talking so much shit. Like bringing up Coltrane again, he got so many bad reviews during his lifetime. To the point where magazines would start just publishing two reviews of all of his albums—one critic that, with like one critic that hated him and one critic that liked him—because it was impossible to find unbiased jazz critics.
0: Uh, well, that's it. We're taking them down. Yes. Yeah. On this episode,
2: <laughs> Who's all next, of get in line. <laughs> Somebody add uh, jazz critics to our list of enemies.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. All of them, the entire batch If you've ever written a review for a jazz album You're going down <laughs> Wow
2: Well, in uh, that spirit I'm going to play the song The Generation Gap Oh, Fitting
1: So I'm looking at the Benny Bailey discography here on the Discogs. And it looks like I own one other record that he was on. He played with Eric Dolphy for a little while. <laughs> I just saw True. that too. Yeah. yeah, He's on... Berlin the, Concerts. Yep, the Berlin Concerts, which I'm not positive what year that's from because it was released in 78. But Eric Dolphy died so in...
0: 19- I'm sorry, it says 1961. I was looking at Wikipedia, it says 1961. Well, there you go.
1: I was going to say, Dolphy died in 64, so it had to be early 60s at some point. So. Yeah.
2: He also worked with Dizzy Gillespie, Lionel Hampton, Quincy Jones, maybe you've heard of him, Sean Dad. Oh, I've heard all about Quincy Jones. Count Basie, mm-hmm. and Stan Getz.
1: Love Stan Getz.
2: And... uh he worked with all those guys, but mostly he preferred playing big band jazz and being in a big band. Okay. Which is pretty... It's This was like not his bread and butter playing in, a, a would it be, a quintet? He was not a fan of the small group kind of performance. He was all about big band jazz, playing in the big orchestras, he... Was from Cleveland, moved to L.A., and then when he was on tour in Europe, decided he just liked Europe better and stayed in Europe. Yeah, a lot of jazz guys were doing that at the time. One of the main
1: reasons being there was just more fans for this kind of music and a whole lot less racism.
2: Yeah. He also cited that a lot of his friends in America were getting into drugs, which were pretty prevalent in the jazz scene in that time and in most times of the jazz scene. (laughs) Yeah. But he was concerned that he would end up getting into drugs and thought Europe was a better place to be for that not happening. Okay. And probably the most interesting thing I read someone say about him was a guy that lived with him who was a jazz dude I already don't remember the name, but he was talking (laughs) about how Benny kept a trumpet on his nightstand and when he woke up in the morning would practice trumpet for an hour before he would get out of bed. Okay. Which is. I
0: don't think that's standard practice.
2: No, that's pretty strange (laughs) and highly annoying if you live with that person. Right.
0: Yeah, I have to imagine there are a lot of musicians that you wouldn't want to live next door to.
2: Yeah, so Benny, not featured by name on this album, but he's got trumpet on pretty much every song. I think he takes a solo in, and he's also phenomenal. I'm not. I'm guessing they just didn't put his name on it because he's not as well known in his own right because he was playing with big bands and kind of as a side man where both Les McCann and Eddie Harris were putting out solo albums for a decade. Right. Left
0: and right. Yeah, and it, obviously this had a pretty good marketing push behind it. What label was this on?
2: Atlantic. This was on Atlantic.
0: Okay, so yeah, pretty major, so they were definitely had a marketing team behind it. I I, I think it's amazing that it sounds as, as good as it does considering that it wasn't a planned recording for a li- of a live concert.
2: Yeah, it's kind of interesting in that way. I mean, it sounds good, but you also hear, like you could hear in that trumpet solo, him like turning away from the microphone and getting quieter. And it's just strange to hear things like that nowadays where everything is so carefully and meticulously put in just the right spot at just the right level. Mm -hmm. So it's, yeah, it's very interesting hearing like a live recording that, could just be from a taper out in the audience basically quality
0: yeah which as someone who listened to a lot of really poor sounding audience recordings in the 90s and early 2000s I, I have, it's almost like an aesthetic for me I, I think my ears are accustomed to that and don't mind it it lends this authenticity or gritty quality bootleg quality to it so I, I might not notice that Sometimes with lo-fi stuff, I just don't notice it because I got so used to hearing music that sounded that way. Yeah.
1: It's nice to know that music you're listening to is made by humans, you know? (laughs) Yeah.
2: We only have a little while longer before the computers take over that, too.
1: Yeah, the the age of human music is coming to an end. (laughs) Boom,
0: boom, 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 boom. That was craft
2: work. (laughs) That was beautiful, Peter. Thank you.
0: Well, do we have anything? Do you have anything else for us? No, I
2: don't. Like, I could talk about the history of all these dudes and list a bunch of names and stuff, but I don't want to. I want to just be in the moment with this record and highly recommend to our listeners. You'll find this record, you'll find it all over. It's super common.
1: And you'll also find a lot of individual records by Les McCann. And or Eddie Harris. As we mentioned, they were extremely prolific. And I have yet to hear a bad record by either one of those dudes. So dig in.
2: Yeah, I haven't really dug into Eddie Harris, but every record I've heard of Les McCann has been excellent. So, yeah, definitely. Keep your eyes peeled. This record's everywhere, though. So,
1: and usually pretty cheap. Like you could definitely find this in a dollar bin if you do even a small amount of digging. Yeah. Well, if you guys don't mind, I made a short list of other soul jazz records that came out in 1969 that are in my collection for further listening for our audience. Give us the list. All right. Give it so to first him. up, we got my dude David T. Walker he did a record called "Going Up" in 1969, and I actually bought this on a trip with you guys. I bought this at uh, Dusty Groove in Chicago. We did our little Chicago uh, day trip.
0: Is his nickname Vinegar? um i don't think so <laughs> okay i just wasn't sure if there was a correlation between walkers yeah. and vinegars uh
1: david t walker is a guitarist and also one of those guys where if you see his name on the record just buy it it's it's always a guaranteed good one and then uh another 1969 soul jazz record that we've talked about on the show memphis underground came out this year boys remember that oh, one yeah, yeah. herbie yep. man and then nice. one of my absolute, if not my absolute favorite, Ramsey Lewis record came out in 69, Mother Nature's Son, his like mm. Beatles cover record, where he's also yeah. like playing synthesizer on it and getting weird at times, and that record rules. It's like a $20 record on Discogs, but all Ramsey Lewis records can be found cheap, so keep an eye out for that one.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, I have a, a feeling that Ramsey Lewis sooner or later is going to get featured on this program. Oh
1: yeah, absolutely. Speaking of big band guys, I got uh, Johnny Hodges, ripping and Runnin'. He was a longtime member of the Duke Ellington Orchestra, and I really, really like his solo material, too. It's an interesting crossover between early big band and the like late 60s soul jazz that's going on. Keep an eye out for his stuff. That's on the Verve Records label. And then one of my all-time favorite soul jazz guys, Mongo Santamaria. Came out with the Stone Soul record in 69. Uh, definitely going to talk about Mongo Santa Maria at some point on here.
0: Stone Soul Picnic? <laughs> or no, just Stone Soul? Just Stone
1: Soul. There, there is also the Stone Soul Picnic albums. Another one of my favorite jazz guitarists, Freddie Robinson, came out with an album called The Coming Atlantis in 1969. That's another one that that record's a little bit hard to find, but keep an eye out for Freddie Robinson because everything he was a part of was great, including... The album Jazz Excursion into Hair by Bobby Bryant. Do either of you guys know about that record?
2: Negative. Peter?
0: That's not the album that's featured at the top of this program. It is.
1: <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> our theme song. That's our theme song. I don't think
0: we've... I don't think we've ever talked about our theme song. We haven't. On, on I think podcast. about that
1: sometimes. And honestly, that record would be a perfect candidate to cover on this show at some point because it's a cheap album and it's really, really good. Very cool. Someday we'll, we'll actually talk about our theme song. <laughs> and then last up, Wes Montgomery put out his classic album, Willow Weep for Me in 1969. That's not a dollar bin one though, is it? Um, I mean, I think it's West Montgomery lucky. is pretty easy to find, and like looking at Discogs right now, you can get a, you can get a solid copy for four bucks. All right. So yeah, there you go. I, I want to say Soul Jazz is one of my absolute favorite subgenres to collect. I think more than most other subgenres, there is some absolutely incredible music to be found there for very very cheap. And part of that was because it was such a a hot-selling thing in its day. Uh, people loved buying these Soul Jazz Party records, but they were always critically maligned and viewed as less important artistically, which is why a lot of them have been forgotten and undervalued and are waiting to be rediscovered, just like this one.
0: Well, I'm glad to hear that, Sean, because I think that the album that we're going to be featuring next week could arguably fall into the Soul Jazz category mm-hmm, as well. hmm
1: Love it. I'm here for it. Let's do it.
2: Cool. We'll see you next week with maybe a soul jazz record.
1: <laughs> maybe.
2: <laughs> maybe.
0: <laughs> You'll have to tune in to find out. This has been I'd Buy That for a Dollar. My name is Peter Cook. I'm Sean Hartman.
2: My name is Jeremy Ruggles. It's still Jeremy And Ruggles. I'm... I'll go out on Kathleen's theme because... <laughs> Uh, it's a totally different vibe, so people can hear like a different vibe from this record.
1: Yeah, this record has a pretty good dynamic range. I was gonna mention that it's it's very listenable,
2: listenable as a whole album. Agreed. We'll see y'all next week. Bye.
1: Thank you so much for listening to another episode of I'd Buy That for a Dollar. We really enjoy making these for you, and it's so nice to hear from people that they're enjoying these episodes and learning about new music with us and just getting excited about these forgotten gems. If you really like the show and you would like to be a part of our Patreon, you can find us at patreon.com/slash I'd buy that podcast. Or you can just go to Patreon and search for I'd Buy That For A Dollar. You should be able to find us either way. We've got different tiers and different rewards. You can get the episodes in advance. You can get our Patreon-exclusive episodes. We post new ones once a month. But, you know, sometimes the most valuable thing you can do for us if you really want to give us a quick help is just a little word of mouth. Tell a few friends that you know might like it. Maybe post a link to an episode on your Facebooks. We we appreciate you either way. It all helps. Thanks for listening. See you next week.